Let us pray. Prepare our hearts for the word. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that we would be people that are transformed by your word. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. The ball is tipped, and there you are. Running for your life, you're a shooting star. And all the years, no one knows just how hard you worked, but now it shows. One shining moment. It's all on the line. One shining moment. They're frozen in time. But time is short. <laughs> and the road is long. And I'm living given eye. The moment's gone. And when it's done, win or lose, you always did your best. Because inside you knew. That's, yeah, there we go. There we go. One shining moment. That's why I'm not singing in the choir, everyone. So uh, just do that. Yeah. Well, for the past 30 years, if you didn't know, that song I just sang, One Shining Moment, has been played after every NCAA basketball tournament. Cheesy, yes. But the lyrics communicate, I think, what I love about the tournament and why it's so good. A lot of, you know, it's a kind of a music montage. It shows all these players playing through the tournament at the end. And you see that a lot of these student athletes, this is the last time that they're going to play competitively. And really, they play with everything they've got. It's really all stripped away. Their hustle is amazing. They die for balls. There's last-second misses. And if you watch the one shining moment montage of the tournament, there are tons of tears, lots of crying, really, because there's only one person that wins the whole thing. And for a lot of these young men, it's the culmination of all their hard work. It's really been the majority of their life that they've dedicated to playing this. Well, today we're not going to hear a cheesy song, but we are going to see the end through a type of song in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not always a joyous picture, but it does show us what matters when all things are stripped away and who is left and what truly matters. It's a picture of who belongs to the kingdom. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, how do I know I'm in the big dance? How do I know I'm a part of this group of people? How do I know that I am a part of the kingdom? I'll give you the answer off the bat. If you want to write it down, you can. We know that we are part of the kingdom when the ethics of the kingdom show in our life and that they have been established by the solid foundation of the gospel. We know that we are part of the kingdom when the ethics of the kingdom show up in our life 
and they have been established by the solid foundation of the gospel. Let's look together, shall we, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we've started the Sermon on the Mount in January. We're going through what many have labeled the greatest sermon ever preached. We'll be finishing it this week, and then we will continue in Matthew, in the crucifixion, the resurrection, and some of the parables of Matthew before we start the book of Revelation this summer. Well, here is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And truthfully, it's not really what some of us would expect I stick some, some rousing end to it that says, go for it, you can do it, be encouraged, let's go and spread the gospel. But no, instead, Jesus leaves us with a shock. It's kind of like a movie that ends abruptly. You know, you see an ending scene that shocks you and then credits, boom, and you're like, whoa. And that's what happens here. It is Jesus' purpose to shock us, to wake us up. What we've seen is uh, he's been speaking to his disciples, but there's been a crowd that is formed among his disciples, and they are pushing in, trying to hear what Jesus is saying. And through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been giving a picture of the kingdom what it means to be a part of his reign, what it will be like when heaven arrives on earth. And he's giving us a picture of what it means to live in this kingdom. And he's getting these people that are pressing in and hearing about this kingdom, he's getting them not just to assume I'm a part of it, but to actually think, am I a part of this group? When it's all stripped away, am I a part of this kingdom? Do I belong to it? I think this passage comes at a great time, being Palm Sunday. We saw that on at Sunday, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds were large. 
saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. But when it was all stripped away, when Jesus didn't ride on a coal into town, when he rode out of town, or more like he carried a cross out of town, those same voices that said Hosanna said, crucify him. It does make us think who truly belongs to the kingdom when it's all stripped away. It's no surprise that Jesus would end like this. This is really his good understanding of the human condition. We're enamored by outward signs, by lip service, by being free riders. What can I get out of it rather than actually joining and being a part of it? And we have to answer, are we a part of the crowd or are we the disciples? You see, this message isn't simply for a bunch of people hanging on the hillside looking at the Sea of Galilee in the first century. This message is also for us today, the church. Are we the crowd or are we disciples? When we started the Sermon on the Mount, I said, you know, the Sermon on the Mount has got a lot of good lip service. People might not think much about Christianity or might not like it very much, but if you're going to like something, and people seem to like Jesus, this is the part you like, the Sermon on the Mount. It's fascinating as I've been reading other people through this time, I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, I was reading Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson uh, loved to cut out all the supernatural rubbish in the Bible, is what he called it. And you had the Jefferson Bible that cut all those things out. And one thing he, he kept in was the Sermon on the Mount. I was listening to Sam Harris this week, um, a leading atheist in North America. And uh, I was fascinated by his praising the Sermon on the Mount. And I do wonder if people that don't think much about Christianity, but think a lot about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus, if they've really read what Jesus is claiming in the Sermon on the Mount. Here, especially in the last section, it's pretty shocking about what he's claiming about himself. First of all, he is talking about the end of days, the end of time, and final judgment. And he's putting himself in a very powerful position at that time. What does it say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He also says, I will declare to them. Jesus is saying he is the judge. He's the one that decides who enters the kingdom and who does not. Also, he says this, he says, whoever hears the words of mine, He's not simply the judge, he's also the arbiter of what is good and what is not. (laughs) What I say is good. What I say is what you should follow and what is the gauge of whether you're in or you're out. The crowds, as it said at the end, they were astonished. I mean, scribes don't talk in this way. They quote other leaders or they quote the Torah But Jesus says, I say. 
talking to Phil a little bit earlier. If I said Thanos is going to kill all the Avengers, the remaining Avengers, in the next Avengers movie, you would say to me, where did you hear that? Have you seen clips of the movie? And what if I said to you, no, I haven't seen clips of the movie. I wrote the screenplay. You would say, yeah, right. That's what Jesus is saying. I wrote the screenplay. I know because I am God. See, the Sermon on the Mount, it compels us to say, first of all, who is it that utters these words? Who is it that is uttering such things as this? Jesus says, I am judge. I am arbiter of what is good. Twice this week, I've met with individuals and they've said to me, I like Jesus. And then further in the conversation, in talking about how they measure their life, they said, I measure my acceptance by God by being good. It's fascinating when I probe on those questions, what's it mean to be good? And who is the arbiter of what is good? Jesus never comes up again in the conversation. See, Jesus is saying, I am the judge of what is a good life. I am the measurement of the good life. I do want to say to Thomas Jefferson, if I could, Maybe I could write Sam Harris a letter. Do you think this is a sane individual, Jesus Christ? You think it's sane that he says, I am the one that judges all life, all humanity? This isn't a middle ground kind of thing. This isn't, I like the Sermon on the Mount. No, this is... Either he is God, he is the ultimate judge, he is the ultimate arbiter of what is good, or he is insane. It should make us think, if we really want to know who Jesus is, we really want to know what the Sermon on the Mount says, maybe we should listen to him to see if we are in the kingdom or not. He decides. Well, let's see what he says, shall we? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus starts with a warning. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. When you look at this, this very confession that people are making, Lord, Lord, it's a good confession. It's calling Jesus Lord. That's a big deal. And back in that day, the person that you would call Lord and have a divinity spin on it was Caesar. And if you're a Christian and say, no, the Lord is not Caesar, but the Lord is Jesus, that is a hard confession to make in, a Roman, in the Roman Empire. And it's standing up for something. Next, they say it twice. 
When you say things twice in Hebrew, it adds intensity and passion. But more than that, when you say Lord, Lord twice, it can have a connection to not just saying Kyrios, Kyrios, which is in the Greek, but a connection between Adonai and Yahweh, the words for God. It's an admission of divinity and a sign of intensity and passion. And they're saying it publicly. Here is an orthodox statement of faith. Here is a public profession of faith. Here is an intense statement of faith. But Jesus says, even those people that say such things like that, they will not be in the kingdom of God. Ooh, man, this, this, if you're a Christian, you're like, okay, what, what's going on here? Does not Paul say, confess with your mouth and you shall be saved? Please hear me. Confession remains essential to entering the kingdom. But it is not sufficient to guarantee kingdom entrance. Confession is essential to entering the kingdom, but is not sufficient to guarantee kingdom ent- entrance. Oh my word, the reform guy who says by faith alone what has happened to this reformed church, right? No, hear me. Paul goes on, he says, true disciples have a confession of heart too. I firmly hold by faith alone. I believe the Bible teaches that and Christ teaches that. But I do not think Jesus was pitting obedience against faith. But he did insist obedience is necessary expression of true faith. See, faith without works is not true faith. And then Jesus doubles down. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, oh man. And on that day, it's talking about the day of judgment. And you can't see it here in the English as it is in the Greek, but it says, did we not prophesy in your name? And then again, it says, did we not cast out demons in your name? And again, it says, did we not do mighty works in your name? Three times they try to prove themselves through some pretty amazing things and works. And Jesus is saying, not even these things guarantee entrance. Well, Judas did the same, did he not? There's times in Acts where people did these things where they were not part of the kingdom. I think what is most surprising is not that those people are not part of the kingdom. What is most surprising is this in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That you can actually do those things. You can be so duplicitous. You can do all these mighty things on the outside, but you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. That is what's most surprising. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he's not saying knowledge of head. He's talking about intimate relationship. I never had a relationship with you. This message seems harsh. 
But the truth is it shouldn't shock us because it goes from what we've heard throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not just about external rules and what's shown on the outside. He's going on after what is in the heart and internal change. He wants people, what, in verse 21? To do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does he mean by the will of my Father who is in heaven? I don't think he means just being able to predict what God wants to do in our lives, who we're supposed to marry, what job we're supposed to take, and say, oh, I'm trying to figure out his will. No, he's saying the will is what I've been talking about this whole Sermon on the Mount. These are clear things that I've given you that you are supposed to do. It's amazing how we put more emphasis on what God will do rather than what he's actually given us to do. Where we spare more energy on doing that stuff than actually caring about what he's called us to do. See, the marks of kingdom people is peace, fidelity, telling the truth, generosity, Love for enemy. It is the way of the kingdom. And you can have spectacular deeds. You can have great theology, but you can be avoiding the most pressing issue. Forgiveness. Surrender of your life. Love for others. Maybe this causing some consternation in you. I think that's Jesus' point. He's trying to, to get you to think, am I a part of this kingdom? And maybe one of the tests of loyalty is what do you do when his will, his calling out what you're supposed to do, his ethics, his commands are different than from what you are doing or what you want? The test of loyalty, again, is when he tells you to do certain things and you go, well, I really don't want to do them. What will you follow? Maybe you've been reading the Gospels. Jesus does these things consistently. He calls out people individually. Follow along with you, like the Samaritan woman, right? He, she says, I, I, I do not have a husband. You know, I, he asked her about, do you have a husband? I, I do not have a husband. He says, you're right. You have, you've had five husbands. And the one you're living with right now is not your husband. You see, Jesus has this way of finding out the ways that people are living in contradiction to what he's called. He finds that out in people. And he calls them to surrender to him. Okay, I gave one example of what you might say licentiousness, but how about you take the good person, the rich young ruler, right? Who was doing everything right. And what did Jesus say to him? Give up everything. Sell everything and follow me. You see, again, Jesus is going after what's in someone's heart. How about Nicodemus? The good Pharisee. The rule follower, right? And what did Nicodemus say? Maybe if I just make some tweaks and some changes, I can follow Jesus. But what did Jesus say? No, you must be 
born again. You see, Jesus finds out, doesn't he? It makes sense because he's God. He knows everything. He finds out where we are in contradiction. And he says, surrender to me. I have seen some of the most knowledgeable people of the Bible. The most orthodox, reformed, truly reformed people. I've seen some of the most talented orators. But they can't forgive. Some can't stop lying. Some live a life of continual criticism. Some can't find a kind word to share with their wife. It does make us wonder, where is the fruit of the Spirit? Where is joy and love and peace and patience and kindness? Do they really know Christ, who has given so much grace, that has forgiven them, that they can't even give forgiveness to others and love and patience to others? Do they even know him? Sometimes the quietest Christians may please God much more than the most visible and public church leaders. Oh, but we're a culture that loves spectacular deeds, don't we? The guy on TV, the guy with the large crowd, the lady that sells books, whatever it might be, that's who we think really matters. I continually go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Whoa! What a powerful thing to control the spirits, control demons. That's a powerful thing. But Jesus says, no, don't just praise that. That's nothing compared to your name being written in the kingdom. That is even mightier and greater. I really believe the goal here is not to frighten believers, but is to awaken those who profess faith without having faith. And here it says there are many. It's pretty sad that you can be close to spirituality, but know nothing of its fundamental character. Abraham Kuyper, the famous theologian in the Netherlands in the 20th century, before he became this famous theologian and and leader, thought leader in the Netherlands, he was a pastor. And one day an elderly woman came up to him after his sermon and shared the gospel with him. And Abraham Kuyper, through the ministry of this elderly woman in his church, became a Christian. A pastor. 
This is not a heritage thing, people. I think it's great to baptize Grayson this morning, and I think there's something significant of people being born in Christian families, but it is not a heritage thing. You're not a Christian because you have respectable parents. You're not a Christian because you've learned the right things to say about the views of inerrancy. You're not a Christian because you have the right political views. You're not a Christian because you're a Wheaton grad. You can acknowledge all that stuff and still not be born again. Here's the crazy thing. You can even ride the wave of Christianity, which is a good thing to ride, right? For the most part, Christians are nice. They're moral. They're happier people by statistics. They have good families by statistics, they show. You can be around all of that stuff and be benefiting from all that stuff, and you can be far from God. I have good news for some of you. For some of you that did not grow up on DC Talk or Audio Adrenaline, and when I say those names, you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's good news for you. You haven't been around the right verbiage, the right t-shirts. You haven't been distracted and blinded. It's good news for you. Because you might not have, you might go to the Bible studies we have and go, I have no idea what they're talking about. That's okay. Because all it is is saying, I commit my life to Christ. That's what it's about. And for many of you, you haven't had to cut through all of this cultural stuff. You can just go right to him. And I'm glad you're here at Emmaus Road. Well, it goes on. It says, Jesus repeats these kind of ideas, and now he does it through a famous illustration of two houses, one built on the rock and one on sand. Here's the thing about houses. Most of the time, you can't see the foundations from the outside. From the outside, they can look the same. In fact, sometimes houses that are built on poor foundations, sand houses, look better. Jesus talked about that earlier. He said, those that boast about fasting or praying or being generous, you know, they look great. But the truth is, they have built their house on the sand. They look wonderful on the outside. I got to go to La Jolla, which is near San Diego, a very, very wealthy area in Southern California. And it's kind of elevated um, over the ocean. Some amazing houses. But not till I went down to the ocean and was doing some kayaking and you can see the cliffs and see these houses built on the cliffs of what a precarious place these houses are on. One, they're not built on a very good foundation. Two, they're built on the fault line. And three, some of these houses have already fallen into the ocean. But still, people keep on building, which is the crazier thing. You could see them still building additions onto those houses, knowing where they're built on. 
See, it might not look as good, houses built on the rock, but they will last. The truth is, many people that you see, they think they have great houses. The, the greatest emphasis of this passage is, we will not know until the very end what houses will stay and what houses will go. You might think everything is going right with you, but then Christ's judgment will come and we will find out. See, houses built on the sand are built on yourself. You might be doing great things and look really good, but the question is, what are the motives? When storms come and batter the house, they start taking away money or image or our stuff. We realize, can I take the criticism? I feel defeated. Everything is gone. And then there is what a great crash, as Jesus says. But those that build their house on the rock, we've sung about all day long. They are poor in spirit. Those that mourn, those that are meek, the people that build their house on the rock say that all that I am, everything that I have is because of Christ. It is nothing else. I am nothing without him. Yes, storms may come and take away money or esteem or job, but that's okay because that was nothing anyway compared to being built on Christ. The question is, how do you know if your house is built on the rock? Well, maybe if someone comes after your money, your response is not retaliation. Right? Is that what the Sermon on the Mount talked about? It's not anger, but it's love. If someone comes after your character and who you are, your first response is, I'm going to take down my enemy. No, your response is, I'm going to love my enemy. When your marriage is on the rocks, your first response is, well, if I can't get it from my spouse, I'm going to get it from someone else. And you lust and desire after others. See, if your life is built on the rock, on Christ, storms may come and you will stand on him. See, it's easy to hide your foundation when the world is going so well. And that's why we need to thank God sometimes that he brings us storms to expose what our true foundation is. I love the NCAA tournament. I love it because you never know what's going to happen. But what happened last year, I thought, would never happen. 135 times a number one seed had beaten a number 16 seed. And then last year, the University of Virginia lost to University of Maryland, Baltimore County. A number one lost to a number 16 the coach on the team, Tony Bennett, a Wisconsin native, a Christian, 
This is what Tony Bennett in one of his testimonies shared way before this loss. He said this, I have great things in my life. My love for my wife, my love for my family, my love for coaching, my love for basketball. But those are all wonderful things. But when you line them up in comparison to Christ and the relationship you have with him, with what he's done for you and what he's given you, they don't compare. That's the greatest truth I know. Right? Is that foundation language? That's the rock language? How about after you lose to a number 16 seed? Sorry, I heard some of the interviews he gave this week. And he admitted after that loss, he wondered, what is my foundation? I was humiliated as a coach. Some coaches never recover. Every place they played, now imagine this. Every road trip they, met, they went to, guess what was chanted over and over again? UMBC. UMBC. Could you imagine that? Humiliation. Every place you go. He had a question, what do I really trust in? Is it true? Is Christ really the foundation of my life? If you know this, Nancy Dell determined that, you know, when those big stadiums, they lift up the floor, right? And so the coach is by himself, and all the players are kind of down below. So one person asked him, they saw him, he had, after he had won, he had kind of bowed, bowed his head. And someone asked him, what were you saying? And Tony Bennett said this, he said, thank you. He's praying to God. Thank you. I am humbled. Tony Kornheiser, who is not a Christian, a commentator said this about the whole thing. He called the move from humiliation to a national championship Shakespeare redemption. But then he caught himself and he said, well, it's probably more accurate to call it biblical. How true it is! from the lips of someone who is not a Christian. The message of the kingdom is that our king humbled himself to death on a cross. He took what we deserve. He took our sin. He took our pride. He took our kingdoms. To what? To lay a solid foundation for us. So that we would say like Tony Bennett, thank you for humbling us to the point where we will follow you, not just lip service, but our very lives, and we will build it upon the rock. Many will say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, I never knew you. Don't let that be you. you haven't talked to God lately, if you haven't had a conversation with him, maybe this is a time to do it. Maybe it's a time to say, where is our relationship at? Do we know each other? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for caring about us so much that you didn't leave us with some flowery language at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That you really cared for us, that you wanted to know if we belong to your kingdom. God, I pray that we would be people that are transformed by you. That we are people that are not just hearers of the word, but doers of it. And that is a testimony that our lives have been changed by your spirit. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.